start a recording. So uh, thank you for everybody for uh, for coming. Uh, tonight's uh, class is sponsored by Shira and Aaron Breen for Eschos, for for Shema, for Rafi, their son, Rafael Ruven ben Shira Hadassah, Besoch Sharchalei Yisrael, who's having Amen. surgery today, and in celebration of their wedding anniversary. Also today, so... Uh, uh, Aaron or Shira or both of them in Stu and I are and Arnie. Right? Yeah, Arnie, also you there at the wedding? I am. You were at the wedding though. Yes, I said yes, a he was under the chuppah. Under the chuppah. He, so he was we, there. Here, here we are again, uh, sharing this uh, this night uh, together. <laughs> okay, good All right, yeah, we're so still working on the leftovers from the l'chaim. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So uh, we pick up uh, hopefully where we left off uh, last uh, last week uh, with regards to this uh, the first principle and the absolute existence uh, uh, of Hashem, and uh, we uh, we talked about how uh, Hashem's existence uh, in a way which we'll talk about in a moment, but it's something which is difficult for us to be able to grasp. But there's a phrase which uh, the Rambam uses in his description of uh, of Hashem of Hashem's existence. Which is, we say it, this is uh, on Simchas Torah night. We begin with the Pasuk, Ladas, that you uh, uh, should be aware. Ki Hashem hu Elohim, Hashem is God, ain od milvado. And there's nothing else other than Him. And Reb Chaim Volazhin, the, uh, the famous student of the, of the Vilna Gon, so he uh, says that the term ain od milvado, that there's nothing else other than Hashem, his, uh, his explanation of that is pshuto kimashmau, that it should be understood not in any complex or Kabbalistic terms. It should be understood in very simple uh, in straightforward terms, that the only thing which truly exists in this universe is Hashem, and everything else which seems to exist is merely an illusion uh, which, uh, which we perceive and it seems to form what we call reality, but none of that existence is real. And the muscle, like we gave uh, last week, uh, is watching a movie or watching a, uh, a television show. Now that you could have a big screen TV with surround sound and all sorts of uh, fancy graphics and, and whatnot. So you could have the, uh, and certainly if you go to like an IMAX type of thing or, uh, or uh, virtual reality, it may seem as if you're in the middle of a scene which as far as your senses are concerned, your senses are picking up all of that virtual reality. But you know that ultimately you have something over your eyes and you have something over your ears and the senses are being stimulated by something which doesn't really exist. So virtual reality is really a good muscle for the way that Reb Chaim Velazhin says how we should perceive Hashem and we should perceive the existence of everything else that the only thing which actually and truly exists is Hashem. That's the Eidod Melvado. There's nothing else other than Him. And everything else which we see and we perceive and seems to be reality is merely and, uh, uh, merely an illusion. Now, the difficulty that we have, one of the difficulties we have with comprehending this and contemplating this and processing this is that it's, it, it's virtually impossible for the human mind to grasp anything outside of its own experience. So we understand the concept of time because we've all experienced the, uh, the, uh, the passage of time over the course of our lives. So we can't really imagine 
what a, a, a universe would be. It wouldn't really be a universe, but what existence would be before time, before creation. We always like to put things in terms of in terms of time. So we would pose the question in terms of what did Hashem do for millions and billions and trillions of years before he created the universe? As if time existed before creation. And once we go ahead and we try and contemplate or understand God um, in terms of time, so that's where we're left sort of scratching our heads. What exactly does that mean? Like one, one morning God woke up and he said, you know what? I've been bored the past trillion years. I think I'm going to go ahead and create a physical universe. So we think of, about all of that in terms of a timeline. And that's where we're left thinking, how could there possibly be such a thing as a timeline to be able to understand Hashem's existence when it's something which is unfathomable as far as the human mind is, is concerned. And that's why those who remember from Daf, uh, Daf Yomi or those who are part of the cycle will get to it to, uh, when we talk about, when we get to Maseches Chagiga, we get to end of Moed. So Chazal actually say that one should not seek to understand that which existed before the universe because it's outside of our ability to comprehend and our ability to conceive what exactly that's going to mean. In some of the Mephoshim say, they point out the very important thing that the first of the Aseris Adibros, which according to a uh, conventional uh, uh, perspective is the, is the commandment of belief in God. So the way that Akash Baruch Hu presents himself in that first of the 10 commandments is, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Asher Hotzeisicha Me'eretz Mitzrayim. That I am Hashem your God who took you out of Mitzrayim. And commentators ask the question, why is it that God says, Anochi Hashem I am Hashem your God who took you out of Mitzrayim? Seemingly the greater miracle and the greater definition of God's existence should be, Anochi Hashem Asher Bara Shomai Varetz. I am Hashem your God who created the heavens and the earth. By invoking creation, that clearly makes, that means that all of our existence is stems from Hashem's creation of, of the world. And really that should be the frame of reference by which HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you know what? I am the divine being who should be worshiped because I am the creator of everything which, which exists. And interestingly and curiously, Hashem does not present himself as I am Hashem, your God, who created the heavens and the earth, who created the entire universe. Rather, it is Anochi Hashem Mitzrayim, the one who took you out of Mitzrayim. So, why is it that Hashem presents himself as the redeemer and the savior of the Jewish people, rather than as the creator of heaven and earth? Some of Farshim say, so the commentators explain that HaKash Baruch Hu wants to make sure, and this is at the root of all anthropomorphisms, but Hashem wants to make sure that we have the ability to connect with and have a relationship with Him. And trying to go ahead and conceive and relate to the being who brought the universe into existence really makes our heads spin. And it's something which we can't really grasp. So as a matter of faith, we certainly go ahead and we believe that Hashem is the creator of the heaven and the earth. But that matter of faith is not based on um, that leap of faith that we believe Hashem is a creator. Ultimately, it stems from something which is more experiential in that we had the experience of, uh, of, 
of seeing, we as a nation, had the experience of seeing Hashem as he took us out of Mitzrayim. And those were experiences which we, which we had firsthand. We saw the plague of blood. We saw the frogs. We saw the lice. We saw the darkness. We saw the hail. We saw the death of the firstborn. We saw uh, Krias Yamsuf. We saw all of those things ourselves, experience them personally, personally meaning as a nation. And as a result of that, Hashem says, being that I've demonstrated to you my power, my dominion over the universe and my ability to go ahead and defy laws of nature, that's why you should believe in me. Hashem calls on us to believe in him because of our experience, not because of our faith. Once we believe in him because of our experience, because of the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim incident, then Hashem says, now that you've had the experience uh, of seeing what I could do in the universe, you should also believe that I'm the creator. But in the Aserah Sedibras, we don't reference Hashem as creator. We reference him as the one who took us out of Mitzrayim. And that's a key thing because ultimately the human mind, as we said, can't really grasp anything outside of human experience. And therefore, God's existence in terms of its true essence is ultimately beyond our ability to, uh, to conceive. We could try a muscle here and a muscle there, but ultimately, once you get outside of the existence of time, so that's where, that's where the, that's the end of the conception of the human mind. We can't really uh, imagine things or perceive things or think about things which are outside of time. So this idea of Hashem's absolute existence is captured very succinctly in that phrase, Enod Milvado. Like Rav Chaim Velazhin says, that there's nothing else which actually exists in the world other than Hashem, and everything else which seemingly exists is, we have a much better muscle uh, nowadays than when uh, we originally gave the, uh, the class, whatever, the 15, 20 years ago, but now we have virtual reality as something which we, uh, many of us have probably had the experience where you put on the glasses or you sat in the theater and it actually feels as if you're experiencing that which is taking place in front of your eyes, even though we know 100% that we're not actually on that roller coaster, we're not actually on that cruise or watching the ocean around us, but just it has this ability to stimulate our senses into believing that's where we are and that's what we're, we're actually experiencing. So that is point number one for, uh, for tonight. Now the question is, why is this principle that Hashem's existence is absolute uh, and our existence is, uh, is an illusion? So why is this a principle of belief? Remember that we said in the, in the introduction that uh, all of the principles of belief, uh, the Rambam uh, um, designated or pointed to this particular principle as a means of saying to us that if a person does not have this belief, there's something in their, their worship of Hashem which is going to be off. Their avoda, their service of Hashem, is not going to be uh, complete. It's not going to be the full gamut of the experience without believing every step along the way. So why is it that Hashem's absolute existence is something which is so integral to our avoda? Let's say I, I, I'm, I'm uncertain about Hashem's absolute existence, but I'll do the mitzvahs, I'll study Torah, I'll, do, uh, I'll follow the rules, the laws I don't have an issue with, I can, uh, I can follow those. I don't have to believe in you know, the IRS, and yet I can still go ahead and I can pay taxes. I don't have to believe in lots of things and, and comply with them anyways. So what exactly, why is it that belief in Hashem's absolute existence 
is something which is uh, so essential to our life and our, uh, our service and our worship of Hashem in, uh, in such a fundamental way. So we say, the way that the, uh, the Mufarshim explained it is that, um, um, that um, Rav Yaakov Weinberg, sorry, he says that the, uh, that the reason why belief in an absolute being, the existence of an absolute being is something which is integral is because the only one who could um, identify for us something which is absolute truth is an absolute being. So if Hashem is going to be, if we are going to, as far as the middle four principles are concerned, which have to do with the divinity of Torah and the binding nature of the mitzvahs and the, uh, the principles of Torah and the commandments of the Torah, in order for us to, be, to believe that those, uh, uh, those uh, mitzvahs and the truths of the Torah are absolute and are not going to be subjective to different times, different places, different mores, different morals, and different uh, perceptions of things. So the only one who has the ability to go ahead and identify and enumerate for us those things which are of absolute, uh, are absolute truth is an absolute being. And therefore, if we're going to follow all of these principles, we're going to have clear definitions, absolute definitions as far as what is good and what is evil, what is considered to be truth and what's considered to be falsehood. The only one who could ultimately uh, decide that is the, uh, the absolute being, the essential being who brought the world into, a, into existence. Everything which is dependent upon that um, uh, that the, the, or the only being which could go ahead and share with us these truths is the absolute existence of, of himself. And in the event that, uh, as we know, you could have a whole panel of ethicists, they could be uh, stam ethicists, they could be medical ethicists, they could be a bunch of rabbis who are discussing uh, 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 ethics, and you'll have a disagreement between them. Because ultimately, Anything which doesn't have absolute existence is going to have a bias and is going to have a subjective perspective on how things are supposed to work or how things are working. And, uh, and therefore, that's why there's going to be disagreements as far as different ethics are, are, are concerned. Um, and uh, that's something which is, is indicative of the fact that those ethicists who are formulating those policies or those positions or those perspectives or those uh, different uh, approaches, so they are not absolute. It's not coming from a place of absolute truth. It's coming from a place of what's referred to as relative ethics. Relative ethics are those things which are going to change over time depending on time and place and the, uh, the environment which is going on, the Weltanschauung, I think, is uh, maybe may the word. And those things, once something is, uh, su is subject to change, once relative ethics are what's are going to be, uh, are what's going to uh, uh, set the tone for what's going on. So there is something which can be manipulated. It's something which could be changed. And it's something which could be disregarded altogether. And over the course of all of our lifetimes, so we've seen these types of things which, uh, which, uh, which take place. Um, if, you, if you go ahead and you frame something, uh, is murder 
uh, if we're going to get if we could get a little bit dramatic over here, if we were to say, is murder something which is ethical or it's unethical? So framed from that perspective, everybody would be in agreement, murder is something which is unethical. So that is something that we all agree to. Now, like I've uh, like we've talked about many times over the years, disagreements arise not necessarily from what the halacha is or what the uh, uh, or what the, we are uh, the the uh, the allowance, the permission, or the restriction against doing something. Disagreements most often arise uh, in the area of definition. So murder, we're all going to agree with everybody who's uh, who's on this uh, the Zoom now. Everybody would agree that murder is something which is unethical. However, we know that in society today, they have a very, let's say, a narrow definition of what qualifies as murder. And there are lots of activities which are seen, society at large, or much of society, sees as being outside of the definition of murder. So let's take, for example, uh, you know, two examples come to mind. The easier example is euthanasia, mercy killing. So going ahead and looking at somebody who is at the end of their life, somebody may be terminally ill, somebody may be in pain, there may be all sorts of uh, conditions which are, which, which are there. Somebody has lost their quality of life and society now sees it, or parts of society, a, a large enough part of society, sees it now as a merciful act to go ahead and help that person end their life sooner rather than later. So rather than seeing that as murder, which is what halacha would go ahead and see it in, in most uh, cases, so uh, uh, modern ethics will go ahead and will explain it away as being a merciful, compassionate uh, uh, act which is done for somebody so that they can transition to the new part of their life in a, uh, a, a merciful, compassionate manner. So they've changed the definition of murder. They've excluded the, uh, what we'll call it, the murder of the elderly, the sick, the infirm, those who are terminal, and then defining it as murder, they define it, they see it, it's now perceived as being a compassionate, merciful act which one is doing for that person. And that's a dramatic shift from what existed when any of us were children. Any of us were children, it was not seen as, uh, as such. It would have been seen for what it is, but the morals have changed, relative ethics have changed. And now there are uh, uh, ways of going ahead and trying to manage that in, a, uh, in the, uh, the most compassionate, what's perceived as the most compassionate way possible. What we would say is it's compassionate murder, but ultimately it's still murder. Maybe compassionate murder, but ultimately it's still going to fit into the category of murder. But society is inching its way in that direction where it's not even going to be perceived. Not only is it not murder, but it may not even be seen as an immoral act. Abortion is another one of those, uh, those, uh, those areas where for a long time in history, it was seen as something which is a... Uh, um, uh, um, I don't know if I would say murder because halacha doesn't really see it as, as murder, but it's certainly something which is a prohibited uh, uh, act, something which should not be done. And yet society as a whole uh, on the large sees it as something which now, rather than looking at it from the perspective of the life of the, of the fetus, the life of the, uh, the baby, uh, what happens is, is we go ahead and we shift our focus and we say that it's a mother's choice 
it's her body and her choice. And by just seeing it from that perspective, that it's her body and her choice, and she could decide what medical procedures she would like or she would not like. So suddenly, I don't know, I have no idea what the statistics are, but there are lots of, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of potential lives, which are denied their existence because we've decided that it's a woman's choice and she gets to go ahead and do, uh, and, and do with her body as she, uh, as she wishes. So these small little shifts in terms of perspective, so that takes something which for much of history was seen as an act of, of a murder or an act of killing somebody, some, uh, some being, and now it's transformed into something which is seen as, it's just a choice. It's a medical procedure. You have uh, you know, this uh, growth removed, you have that growth removed. So this is an internal growth, which is, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, exists inside of a woman's body. And if she doesn't want that to, uh, to continue to grow, that's her choice. And nobody has the right to go ahead and, uh, and say boo and to, not, to deny a woman of that, of that right. So all of this is the result. This comes from relative ethics. This comes from ethics which are not rooted in an absolute being, in the absolute being, in the, the, the being of Hashem, whose existence is, is absolute. And once we go ahead and we take it out of there, and it's up to us, so not necessarily in our lifetime, but in our, uh, in our, uh, in our experience. So uh, history, recent history shows us how you could have a leader come along and convince a nation. It wasn't just stomination. It was a very educated, uh, intellectual, uh, seen as a, a moral nation, the, the, the German people pre-World War II. You could transform them into a people who are capable of uh, annihilating and killing millions and millions of people. And not seeing that as being something which is immoral, something which has to be opposed, something which is a, which, which is a bad thing. Much of the people, who, as we said, were very educated people, felt comfortable uh, with what was going on um, in, uh, in Germany. Not everybody, but many of them felt comfortable with it because ultimately, once you uh, see ethics as being relative, so then you can rationalize almost anything. Good rationalist uh, could go ahead, or rationalizer could go ahead and rationalize almost anything. And the only being which has the authority to go ahead and to decide ethics in an absolute sense, truth and falsehood and good and bad, is HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, only the creator of the world, only a being whose existence is absolute, only such a being could go ahead and, uh, and uh, determine ethics. So that is reason number one, why it's an essential principle of belief to, uh, to be aware of the fact that Hashem's existence is, is absolute. Now there's a second, uh, uh, a second uh, reason why belief in an absolute being is essential for anybody who's going to be a serious uh, servant of Hashem, who's going to worship Hashem in the fullest way, uh, way possible. Um, and that is, is that uh, almost from the beginning of time, even before psychologists and philosophers exist, uh, that they had unions of that uh, of that sort, but mankind has been on this never-ending search to understand what is what drives mankind, what's behind all of our emotions, what's behind our drive to perform, to create, to conceive, to be able to do all sorts of different different uh, things. So, what exactly is behind that? What motivates uh, uh, man, uh, mankind? We wonder, 
why it is that uh, that uh, Napoleon had this drive to have statues of him exist in the in the world, and to know that even when he's no longer here, even after he dies, that there will still be statues of him, and that people will still remember who who he is. Why is it that what motivated Stalin, with all of his power and all of uh, that that came with that? Why was he driven to make sure that there's a picture of him all over the Soviet Union and everybody would be aware of his image and would be able to recognize him and to, uh, to do that? And in general, uh, we see this even more so nowadays with uh, the, uh, the ability to post the videos, YouTube videos and whatnot from a dash cam or from things which go, are going on, um, that people have this, uh, this uh, incredibly strong drive for um, fame and recognition. If you could be that one who caught that video, or if you could be even better, you could be the one in the video, which then gets shared hundreds of times, and then thousands of times, tens of thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times, ultimately a million, uh, a million times. If you could be that person, so then you are now going to be famous and you've made it in life. You get 10,000 hits on your YouTube video or something like that. So that is now uh, fame and recognition. And what is it that drives people to want to achieve that? Why is it that people want to be that one whose video was seen tens of thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times? If you really make it big millions and millions of times, what is it that, uh, that uh, stands behind that? That, that, that motivates people? What is it that's uh, perhaps even the, the unconscious mind which drives us in that direction? And Rav Yaakov Weinberg, once again, the Rosh Hashiva from, uh, from Neri Yisrael, in his work on the 13 principles, so he explains that uh, mankind has an unconscious awareness that we don't exist in an absolute sense. We realize, again, whether we have we go through the conscious thought or not, but we realize that our existence in the span of the history of the universe uh, may not even register as a blip on the, on the radar screen. It's something which from our experience, we, we know what, what life was like as children, as teenagers, as young adults, middle age, as we move on in life. So we, we, we experience life as if the universe uh, in a sense came into existence with us and it will go out of existence when we're no longer here. But unconsciously we're aware that we are really a small cog in this very big, uh, in this very big wheel. And knowing that we are really uh, quite minor in terms of the vastness of the universe and the vastness of time and the vastness of mankind, even those who are alive today. So what we try and do is we try and create for ourselves, we try and tap into, or we try and connect to something which is greater than ourselves with the belief, with the unconscious, or sometimes it's even conscious, but with the belief that if we could tap into something which is greater than ourselves, that will allow us to be able to tap into eternity. That will allow us to make a name for ourselves, or at least that we've connected with something which is much greater than, the, that, that, than ourselves. And that's what motivates us in terms of fame and recognition. Fame and recognition is, uh, allows us potentially to have the belief that I'm so famous that even when I'm no longer here physically, even after 120, people will continue to be aware of my existence and perhaps even people will be influenced by my existence long after I am, uh, long after I am gone. 
So if a person isn't going to be able to generate in that in themselves, so what they do is they tap into something which is bigger than themselves. So we don't have it so much nowadays, but uh, you know, a good 50 years ago, uh, you know, 30 years ago, 70 years ago. So you had all sorts of clubs that people would identify with. You had the, I think it was called the Kiwanis Club, K-I-W-A-N-I-S. You had the Elk Club and you had the Moose Club and you had all sorts of clubs that people were a part of, which were a social group, which was supposed to be seen as something which is greater than themselves, where we're able to tap into something which is the belief, which is eternity. Um, the truth is, if you think about sports affiliation in sports identity, everybody, the reason why people are fair weather fans is because people would want to identify with a winner. And if you could identify and see yourself as being a fan of this team, which are champions, somehow we're now connected with them. And that gives us a little bit of a taste or a little bit of a connection of something which is, uh, which is eternal. So those of us, uh, you know, th those of us here in town, so we have it easy. We have the, the, uh, we have, uh, the double uh, uh, three-peat. So we have the Bulls, which we could latch into. Sorry for those of you who may not be Bulls fans, but that's your fault. But we have the Bulls, which we could tap into. So we could watch them win championship after championship after championship and pledge our allegiance. I was a fan of the Bulls even before Michael Jordan was on the team. I'm a true diehard Bulls fan and I identify with the Bulls and that's how I'm going to achieve my eternity. Or maybe it'll be the Bears, or maybe it'll be the White Sox or the Cubs, whatever team you're going to associate with. So that is part, that's an expression of this inner drive to connect to something which is eternal. Because we recognize that's a subconscious awareness of the fact that our existence is something which is not absolute. It's something which is uh, very tenuous at, the, at best. And therefore we try and connect to something which is greater. So being a sports fan is one expression of that. But when we think about it, so power, fame, wealth, communism, atheism, humanism. So all of these are forms of belief systems or connections which we identify with. Some people may identify very strongly with their political affiliation, that they want to be known as part of this group or that group, because that's how they identify and that's what they want to be, uh, that's what they want to be a, a part of. And this is something which, by which we're going to be able to achieve eternity. And that is this strong motivating factor which exists in, in our lives. And if Yaakov Weinberg says, and I think a very perceptive uh, manner, he says that when we seek our, uh, our, uh, the expression of this unconscious drive to connect to something which is eternal, anytime we end up connecting with something other than God, that's a form of idolatry that's connecting to something which gives the illusion, if we go back to that theme, it gives the illusion of something which is eternal, something which is a powerful, something which is going to give us that internal, uh, e eternal, not internal, eternal recognition and existence. But the truth is, is that anything other than Hashem is really, it's, it's literally, it's the man behind the curtain. Ignore the man behind the curtain and just believe in the great powerful Oz, which you're, you're experiencing now. And ultimately, all of that is going to be done. Uh, all of that is done, uh, uh, it's an, uh, in a sense, an idolatrous effort 
to go ahead and to tap into eternal, to be able to make ourselves, to make our existence something which is greater than just the individual slice of the individual blip on the radar screen, which, uh, which we are. Others, another uh, expression of that, which also uh, uh, unfortunately we see a lot of, but the other way that this, uh, this uh, drive, this motivation is expressed is to escape. People seek all sorts of escapes from reality. Escapes from reality is a way of being able to not think about the drive that we have to be able to connect to something which is greater than ourselves. If we don't see ourselves as connecting with something which is eternal, some movement, some group of people, some, uh, some uh, team or something like that. So then since we cannot uh, fathom and we cannot stand to not have this, uh, this, uh, this eternal connection uh, in, in our lives. So rather than uh, uh, not having the connection, so we distract ourselves from the fact that we don't have that as a way of not having to, uh, to, uh, to, experiencing, uh, to, to experience that. And therefore the principle of God's absolute existence tells us that as Jews, when we go ahead and we try and harness this drive that we have to connect to something which is greater than ourselves and something which is, uh, which is ultimately eternal, the only way that we're going to achieve that is connection to God. It's only God's absolute existence which is going to give us eternity. That's the last four principles having to do with reward and punishment and the nature of uh, the eternal life which we achieve through fulfillment of the mitzvahs and connecting with, uh, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And uh, uh, our, 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 our urge, that subconscious urge which we have to be able to connect to something greater than ourselves. So the best expression of that, the most appropriate expression of that is to go ahead and to connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Um, right. So rather than uh, so that's uh, so that is another element of our uh, another essential element of our belief in Hashem's absolute existence is because that guides us in terms of the big picture of things, what we need to connect to, what we need to try and associate with. And um, this emphasis, the emphasis on this uh, this principle is something is uh, in the integral role that it plays in our lives uh, is is clear from the way the Rambam goes at and formulates this uh, this principle in the, uh, the, the elsewhere not in the 13 principles themselves but where he discusses it because in the first halacha of Yesode HaTorah the very beginning of the Rambam where he talks about the fundamental principles of Torah so he says Yesod HaYesodos V'Amar HaChachmos so he says the foundation of all foundations and the pillar of all wisdom is to know that there exists a primary being, is to be aware of Hashem's absolute existence as the, as the creator. And that and Hashem as a primary being, he is the one who infused life into all that exists. Or the Rambam's of the translation is, he infused existence uh, to all that exists. And that's an incredible introduction by the Rambam to go ahead and tell us that this idea of Hashem's absolute existence is the most fundamental aspect of our belief. And it comes before anything you're actually going to read in Torah, before you even open up a Torah, before you open up a Chumash or you open up a Mishnah or you open up a Gemara, before anything else is this one principle, which is the fact that Hashem's existence is absolute. 
and it's the ultimate foundation and pillar of all wisdom, which is going to follow uh, is going to follow after that. And it's also interesting to uh, to note that, as we talked about a little bit before, that the uh, the machlokas, the disagreement between the Rambam and the Bahag, the Rambam and the Baal Halachas Gedolos, the uh, one of the uh, the activities which the Rishonim, uh, certainly the earlier Rishonim, were very active with, was, everybody knows from the Gemara and Makas that there's 613 mitzvahs. But if you go ahead and you do a quick read of the Torah, and you just have your, your counter, that hand counter, every time you come across a mitzvah, you go ahead and you press it and you add another one. So everybody uh, acknowledges that if you add up all of the mitzvahs that, which actually appear in the Torah, there's more than 613. So if there's more than 613, how can Chazal tell us that there's 613? So the early Rishonim were very, very busy with counting up the 613 mitzvahs and coming up with all sorts of theories as to which of the many mitzvahs which are in the Torah are going to be included in the list of 613 and which ones not. There was a little bit of a hint because Chazal also talked about 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commands. So it helps us with the numbers a little bit as far as which direction we're going to go and when we're getting closer to the number or not. But all of the Rishonim were, uh, not all, but the, the early Rishonim were very busy with that task. So the Rambam has his Sefer HaMitzvahs. He has his list and the theory behind them. And another one of the Rishonim, the Gaonim or the Rishonim, which has a list is the Baal Halachas Gedolos. That's the name of the Sefer that, uh, that he wrote lived about 780. Uh, Shimon Kayara is the name that I have here. Um, uh, so the Bahag and Rav Sajagon, uh, even later than that, he was a 10th century. So they don't count the Anochi Hashem Lokecha as one of the 613 mitzvahs. The Rambam does count Anochi Hashem Lokecha, belief in Hashem, as one of the 613 mitzvahs, but the Bahag in Rav Sajagon do not count Anochi Hashem Lokecha as one of the 613 mitzvahs. And the Ramban explains that, uh, that the reason why the Bahag in Rav Sajagon don't count Anochi Hashem Lokecha as one of the mitzvahs is because the truth is, is that the Anochi Hashem Lokecha is the foundation upon which all the mitzvahs exist. Mitzvahs, as we talked about, I think last week or maybe the week before, that in order for any of the mitzvahs to exist, there has to be the mitzvah, there has to be the one who is giving the instructions. And if you don't have one who's giving instructions, then none of the mitzvahs can follow from, the, from that. So we can't say that belief in Hashem is one of the mitzvahs, when belief in Hashem is the only thing which allows the mitzvahs to, uh, to exist. So they go ahead, all of the mitzvahs presuppose a God who has the authority and the existence to give, uh, to give commandments in the, in, the, in the first place. And therefore, they don't come along, the Bahag in Rav Sajagon, according to the Ramban, so they don't go ahead and count Anochi Hashem Al-Kech as one of the mitzvahs because it's the foundation of everything else. But the truth is, is that whether we're going to say that Anochi Hashem Al-Kech is technically one of the 613 mitzvahs, or whether we conclude that Anochi Hashem Lokecha is not one of the 613 mitzvahs, everybody's in agreement of the fundamental uh, nature of that statement. And that all of Torah ultimately is going to be built upon that foundation of belief. 
So we could quibble in a sense, whether we're going to count it as one of the 613 or whether we're not going to count it as one of the 613. But lace man the polling, but nobody's going to disagree and maintain that belief in Hashem is not the most fundamental principle of everything which, uh, which exists. And therefore, so that's why the Rambam has it as the first and, uh, uh, and foremost, uh, one of the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, of our 13 principles, because everything else is going to be an outgrowth of this initial uh, assumption, not even assumption, this initial principle belief of Hashem's, uh, Hashem's absolute existence. So that's why, uh, the, uh, that's why the Rambam goes out and puts this uh, at the outset. And that's why, as we said tonight, the two reasons why, just to, to review quickly, the two reasons why the belief in the absolute existence of Hashem is something which is essential is because number one, only the, an absolute being has the ability to provide us with absolute truth, absolute falsehood, absolute definitions of what's good and evil. And number two, the second reason why I have belief in Hashem's absolute existence is essential for our service of Hashem is because that's what guides us since all of mankind is driven to connect to something which is greater than themselves, some being, some entity, some group, which is greater than them as an individual. So by recognizing that Hashem is the absolute existence, which preceded everything and will continue to exist longer after everything is gone, that tells us that if we ultimately want to achieve that eternal existence and live outside of uh, the uh, the small period of time in history where we physically exist, the only way we're going to be able to achieve that eternal uh, uh, existence is to be able to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's why that's something which is going to be that motivating factor and that driving factor behind everything which we do is ultimately to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that Dveikas with Hashem, because it's the Dveikas with Hashem which is going to give us that, uh, the, that is going to satisfy the, inter- the internal urge which we have to connect with something which is eternal. And that is the, uh, the, uh, the end of principle number one. So we, uh, uh, we will finish with this. Uh, if there are any questions and comments, I'll be more than happy to, uh, uh, to, uh, to respond to that. Otherwise, Amir Hashem. So I think Thursday, for those who would attend on Thursday, I think we're off for the Thanksgiving holiday. I think the uh, conclusion was that uh, people were going to be either eating or they will be so tired from eating that uh, they won't uh, be with us as far as, far as that. So, uh, so next week, though, we'll, uh, we'll have both Tuesday and Thursday, Mirza Hashem, we'll go on to principle number two and uh, have the Thursday night class as well. We'll have a nice turkey day. Yes, Mirza Hashem. Mirza Hashem we should all, since uh, our turkey is Shabbos dinner, I would have been happy to have a shear on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe if there's a strong, uh, a, a strong interest so we could, uh, we could revive it. It's still two days uh, before. But... Uh, yeah, take but a show it, Take what? a show of hands. Take a show of hands. A show of hands. We got a hand. Got two hands, three hands. Oop. Three hands. But not okay. Danny. What? Okay, we, we will see. We'll see. We'll, uh, you'll uh, pay attention to the email if we decide that uh, we will uh, uh, experience resurrection of the, uh, of the class. Even those who don't want to go, even those who, uh, who, who don't attend when we give the class, uh, could always watch the uh, the recording uh, or listen to the recording sometime later. So that's is, resurre- is, is resurrection one of the 13 principles? It is indeed. It is indeed. Okay. All right. 
All the best uh, to you all. Thank you for coming again. Stay healthy, stay safe. And uh, we will see you either Tuesday or Thursday or Thursday or Tuesday. What? Or Thursday or Tuesday. Yeah, or Thursday or Tuesday.